friends, tonight I want to be uh, clear about my goal. So the goal tonight is to persuade you of the following claim in the deepest way I can. That there is no other reasonable explanation of the empty tomb but the announcement that Jesus of Nazareth rose bodily from the dead. The bodily resurrection of Jesus best explains all of the available biblical and even outside the Bible and historical data that is available. Uh, Why is the bodily resurrection of Jesus important and why should we consider it as Christians? The Apostle Paul is crystal clear. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, he argues in 1 Corinthians 15, then we have no gospel. There is no gospel without the risen Christ. He says if Christ has not been raised, people who have died are in their sins. He says we of all people are to be most pitied. Because think of all the suffering and opposition provoked by the good news of Jesus in first century Rome. Truly, Paul is right that if this very fundamental claim is, in, uh, is uh, denied and, and even untrue in the worst case, then there is no gospel. A former atheist named Anthony Flew became a theist later in his life and considered the claims of Christianity. And here's what Flew's response was. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It is outstandingly different in quality and quantity. In one of my favorite books from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, Lewis says that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. And for these who would consider their claims of the risen Christ, we come to the crux of what would make Christianity a religion not to consider at all if Jesus' tomb was occupied. But if the empty tomb is explained by his resurrection from the dead, then that truly changes everything. It vindicates his claims. And it certainly demonstrates the long storyline of Old Testament hope that is finding a climax and a landing point in his own earthly ministry. Our outline tonight will consider first the essential historical claim. Briefly put, it is this. The four Gospels teach that Jesus was crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, and on the third day the tomb was discovered empty because he had risen bodily from the dead. You can consolidate all the accounts of the Gospels to vouch for the clarity of those elements. That he was crucified on the cross, buried in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, the tomb discovered empty on the third day, and the gospel accounts tell us that is because he was raised bodily. This is not something that only these texts would teach and that Christians throughout church history happen to believe in different things along the way. You can instead notice a continuity from the first century proclamations about the resurrection of Jesus that have been anchored into the very creeds of the church. Consider these statements of the creeds. First, the Apostles' Creed. It tells us that he, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the place of the dead, and the third day rose again from the dead. We recite together on the first of each month the Nicene Creed here at Cosmosdale. And it tells us in the Nicene Creed that he, Jesus, was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day, he rose again. We confess this because this is what Christians have confessed since the birth of the church. 
It is what Christians confess because it is what the very apostles and eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus have proclaimed and written from the first century Roman Empire. But I want you to know that outside the Bible, there are interesting pieces of historical evidence that we should also factor into all of this that further confirm and encourage the Christian confession. Historical evidence in four areas, though we could look at more than four, for time's sake, I'll only focus on four, that are so widely agreed upon by non-believing scholars that we can uh, have even greater confidence historically, archaeologically, about a number of things discovered and confirmed. The historical evidence will consider the following four facts about things outside the Bible that the Bible does teach. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Secondly, the disciples claimed to have encounters with the risen Jesus. Thirdly, the conversion of James and Paul. James here is not James of the disciples, the twelve, but James the brother of Jesus, who was an unbeliever before the resurrection. So the conversion of James, who is Jesus' brother, and then Saul of Tarsus, we know as Paul. Fourthly, the historical evidence also demonstrates news of his bodily resurrection proclaimed from Jerusalem. Let's think about each of these four facts. One writer puts it this way. Perhaps no other fact surrounding the life of the historical Jesus is better attested than his death by crucifixion. This is confirmed by outside the Bible accounts, multiple sources, and not sympathizers of Christianity. In fact, historians recognize the value when some kind of opposing source will indeed confirm with their own writings and historical account an event uh, that otherwise might be dubious if uh, objective historical work isn't being uh, conducted. And uh, I want to list for you three pieces of this historical evidence that pertain to the crucifixion of Jesus. So we're thinking about number one here, the crucifixion under Pilate. First is a Jewish historian. His name is Josephus. He was born in the 30s AD, after the death and resurrection of Christ. He was a commander of the Jewish forces in Galilee during their rebellion against Rome in AD 66. Here's what he says. In his book, The Jewish Antiquities, he tells us, Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, condemned him to the cross. Very specific things spoken about there. The context is about Jesus, his crucifixion, and then principal men or leaders among them urging that that take place and that it happen under the governing authority of Pontius Pilate. A variety of, a variety of historical claims all clustering together there with this Jewish historian named Josephus. A Roman historian, to move past a Jewish historian, to a Roman historian named Tacitus, born in the 50s during the first century, he wrote a series of uh, historical accounts, and uh, one of these that he wrote was a narrative of Roman history, a Roman history that covered 14 to 68 A.D., well, what you will notice with that span of time is that you're going to have the earthly ministry of Jesus as well as his death and resurrection. So what would this non-sympathizer and even explicit opponent of Christianity say in what were called his annals, the accounts of this Roman period? He says, a class of people, they are the Christians, are hated for their abominations. They're called Christians by the populace and Christus 
from whom their name had its origin, Christus is the word Christ, Christus, for whom their name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius, that's the emperor, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out, not only in Judea, which was the first source of the evil, but even unto Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Okay, well, Tacitus, he doesn't seem very happy as I read that account. Um, but, but a number of very interesting historical markers. While certainly not a confessing Christian, Tacitus, as a Roman historian, recognizes that under Tiberius and under the governing rule of uh, and influence of Pontius Pilate, Christians who had first started in the Jerusalem Judea area were proclaiming a message as followers of Christus, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, one third, a third example uh, about crucifixion under Pilate. A man named Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, Pliny was a Roman governor in the early 100s A.D. And he wrote a letter, a series of letters, but one of which that's of particular interest to a emperor named Trajan. And Pliny writes to Trajan uh, about his concerns of how to deal with these Christians who refuse to bow and confess the Roman gods. What he has found as perplexing is that they only give worship unto this Christ as to a god. And they refuse the worship of the emperor. Pliny says that these Christians sing hymns to Christ as to a god. And he notes that he's executed Christians who refuse to offer the image, uh, to uh, offer worship to the image of the emperor. He has overseen their, their uh, martyrdom. And he writes to the emperor saying that if he continues to punish Christians, then the number of deaths are going to be quite large. He says many persons of every age, rank, and both sexes are going to be endangered by this then. Um, he says the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but to the villages and to the farms. So what Pliny is so uh, unnerved by is the level of influence and penetration of the gospel message not only abroad and in big cities, but in the smallest of places for people old and young, male and female. And he's saying, do I just cont- how am I going to handle the refusal of these Christians uh, to, um, to not um, worship the emperor and the image and Roman gods, but instead continuing to sing unto Christ as if they were singing to a god? Now, these pieces of historical evidence demonstrate various historical realities that the Bible talks about in the gospel accounts. That beginning in Jerusalem and in the region of Judea, an announcement broke forth and ultimately spread to the Roman Empire that one named Jesus of Nazareth was proclaimed risen from the dead by his followers. And not only were they proclaiming him risen from the dead, they were willing to endure imprisonment, arrest, torture, and martyrdom to take that belief to their very death. Um, We also can notice that with these hostile accounts, Pliny and Tacitus especially, the crucifixion of Jesus meets the criteria historically by historians that these are multiple independent sources and even attestation by non-sympathizers about these historical facts. It is not a serious position among any historians to say things like, well, maybe Jesus never existed. 
Even non-sympathetic, non-Christian sources recognize not only that he did, but that explains the rise of Christianity, the disciples, and their message that created such uh, frustration for the Romans. John Dominic Crossan is a non-Christian, but a critical scholar and studier of New Testament documents. He says the fact that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. The evidence mounts so strongly for this first notion. Even unbelievers, like someone by the name of Bart Ehrman, he says Tacitus' report confirms what we know from other ancient sources. Jesus was executed by the order of the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, during the reign of Tiberius. And so we can recognize that when the New Testament tells us there was someone named Jesus in first century Rome who was crucified by Pontius Pilate, other ancient sources confirm that very thing. I want you to consider as well the second point here. Disciples claimed encounters with the risen Jesus. Now, historians might not be persuaded by the disciples' claim, but it's not disputed among historians that the disciples did claim as eyewitnesses to be encountering the risen Christ. In one uh, writing from the 1800s uh, by a German scholar, he says, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences that they believed are encounters of the risen Christ. That particular German scholar thinks those disciples were probably hallucinating. We'll consider whether that's actually a plausible scenario at all. But he says it, it, it would be beyond the pale to deny that these eyewitnesses in the ministry of Christ weren't claiming to have encountered him. There's not a dispute that these early followers of Jesus believed something had happened. Thirdly, there's the claim that there was a conversion of Jesus' brother James and a man, a Jew, a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus that we know as Paul in the book of Acts. The reason this is important takes us back to Josephus. Josephus is that Jewish historian born in the 30s, and he tells us in one of his books, The Jewish Antiquities, that one of the criminals who was a Christian was condemned. His name was James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. In Jewish Antiquities, an outside-the-Bible account, Josephus is telling us about one of the siblings of Jesus who was martyred the brother of Jesus called James. What would it have taken for someone like James, who was not one of the 12 disciples, but an unbeliever, to become a follower of Jesus after a pronouncement of his resurrection? What would it take for someone like James to be condemned to martyrdom? We know that this had happened historically. Another writer from the 100s, the 2nd century A.D., named Tertullian, tells us the Apostle Paul not only had become a Christian, but was martyred under the Roman Emperor Nero. We see then, outside the Bible sources, talking about a conversion of James and a Jewish Pharisee named Paul who was condemned to die. This fourth piece of uh, historical evidence is about the news of the bodily resurrection of Jesus originating from Judea and specifically Jerusalem. In Tacitus's work of the summary of the Roman Empire, not the whole empire, but a summary of a window of the years of Rome's rule, he calls 
Judea the first source of the evil of the Christian gospel. Okay, so he's obviously not a fan of the Christian gospel. But he does recognize where does the Christian gospel originate? Of all places, in the same region where Jesus was crucified. Peter Williams, in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels, says, We can conclude, historically, that Christ was executed under Pontius Pilate. Shortly afterward, he was treated as God by a group of people who retained their core belief that there's only one God, but they're singing to Christ as his son. Williams goes on to say that Christianity spread rapidly, and we know historically it was difficult to be a Christian. There are many theories that someone might say, knowing these historical accounts, okay, let's say he was crucified. Disciples believe they encountered a risen Jesus. They couldn't produce his body from a tomb. They couldn't say, here it is. Let's roll the stone away. Don't you see him? Here he lies, still dead. And we then have a conversion of people like James and Paul, news spreading from Jerusalem. Attempts have been made to say, I don't want to think of it as a bodily resurrection. What if something else happened? The most common, and I couldn't think of any that I could track down beyond these top seven, though I'm saying top seven, maybe there's an eighth or a ninth that would be a a sub-theory connected to these, but these are the explanations sometimes suggested uh, that are woefully inadequate. One of them would be, okay, Jesus didn't rise from the dead because he never actually went to the cross. This is what Muslims believe. In Surah 4 of the Quran, the Quran teaches that Jesus was taken to Allah before the cross. This is what Muhammad taught in the 600s. Muslims teach that someone other than Jesus died on the cross. Others um, look at this, though, and they think, whether they're Muslim skeptics or whether they are uh, people listening to those claims, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. What about the outside the Bible Jewish and Roman sources that also confirm that historically? What about the multiple sources, and I just highlighted three of them, but a multitude of others that speak of this event? Were we to say that not only the Gospels, but both Jewish sources and Roman sources are entirely wrong? Are we to believe that Pilate sentenced a man to be flogged and crucified who wasn't Jesus? Whom he evaluated and who Herod Antipas evaluated? Wouldn't the crowd have known and the soldiers have known? This wasn't taking place in just any city on on earth, but in Jerusalem of all places where Jesus' popularity and notoriety was at an all-time high. Are we to believe that the religious leaders who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, would not have known? Early Christians began to report that Joseph of Arimathea had buried Jesus and women had witnessed his body being put into a tomb. Are we to believe that these people didn't realize Jesus actually wasn't crucified? The theory of this not only goes against reason, but we can see a direct historical contradiction to what we know from outside the Bible bearing witness in history. There's another theory. Maybe Jesus was on the cross, but he didn't actually die. So one of the reasons the disciples encounter him is because um, they did encounter him bodily. He just wasn't raised from the dead. He never died. This is sometimes called the swoon theory. Jesus only swooned or seemed to faint or be rendered unconscious on the cross. There are multiple problems with this. 
Roman soldiers are professional executioners. And you didn't have a tally of people that you knew survived crucifixions. Going to a crucified, a crucifixion site was a one-way trip. These people know all about torture and even floggings leading up to crucifixion that would sometimes even kill a victim before getting to that site of crucifixion. This theory would have to assume that Jesus was on the cross, succumbed to some kind of what? Low blood sugar or fainting issue and then uh, loss of this and that and managed to not die but fool everybody, even the soldier that pierced him in the side and declared him dead. So that he's wrapped up and put into a tomb and then on the third day manages to convince his disciples he's been victoriously raised. Think about what this would imply. The accounts tell us of a stone rolled in front of the tomb by Roman order. This would require that Jesus would violate the seal of the Romans upon that stone, roll back the stone, and manage to pass by all the Roman guards stationed there. Not only does this stretch the point of reason, it is an absurd notion that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. In 2015, I had back surgery, microscopic back surgery. I was given anesthesia, and the entire operation was in a clean medical facility, trained doctors and surgeons. I was not supposed to lift anything more than 10 pounds for several weeks while healing was taking place. The sheer notion... That Jesus would be on the cross crucified and manage to pull off some kind of convincing act for his disciples that he had been victoriously raised from the dead is absolutely absurd. In fact, an expert team in the journal Journal of the American Medical Association concluded in the 1980s that interpretations based on this assumption that Jesus didn't die on the cross are at odds with all modern medical knowledge. A liberal theologian from Germany in the 1800s said, It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher and crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, requiring bandages, strength and indulgence, at last convinced his disciples that he was the conqueror of death and the grave. And so even liberal German scholars look at this idea and think, that's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. No early evidence exists claiming Jesus was merely wounded by the cross. Rather, both biblical and outside the Bible historical accounts confirm that he was put to death and condemned by crucifixion. This third idea, though, maybe, maybe the reason they found the tomb empty is because the women went to the wrong tomb. Okay, it was just like a tomb with a stone on the side, and there was no body in there, yes, but that's because there was no body ever placed in there to begin with. It was just an empty tomb. This theory would assume that the women on the Easter morning were in their grief and shock, completely overwhelmed, and went to the wrong tomb and began to proclaim he's risen from the dead by mistake. That would presume that Joseph of Arimathea would not have known where his own tomb was to go and check. This would presume that the disciples would have been mistaken as well and that everyone after them went to the wrong tomb as well, including the Roman soldiers. And I've already mentioned Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb it belonged to. Nobody would have believed in the resurrection of Jesus if the tomb had not actually been empty and an experience of a bodily resurrection individually. Somebody could have identified the correct tomb easily. The whole Christian movement would have been shut down entirely. In fact, consider that when the gospel news from the women to the disciples is given, they are reluctant and doubtful. 
They don't say, oh, yes, exactly right on schedule, just as he had said. This theory fails to account for what the disciples testified and were martyred claiming unto their death. They did not merely die claiming the tomb had been empty. They died claiming they had encountered the risen Jesus from the dead. The women went to the wrong tomb is not a plausible scenario at all. In fact, the fourth um, also strains credulity and reasonableness. The disciples stole the body. This would go against everything we know about these disciples. These fearful disciples who fled in Gethsemane. Peter who denies Jesus multiple times. Armed people who have arrested Jesus and are taking him ultimately to crucifixion on that Friday morning. How would these disciples ever gather the courage to steal his body in front of a group of Roman soldiers? A Roman guard would put them to death. What would they do with the Roman guard? How would all of the guards even be asleep at the same time for the disciples to do anything? How would they manage to roll back a stone quietly? And if they stole the body, what would they gain except suffering, torture, and martyrdom? Would you be tortured and martyred for something you know would not be true? That's what that theory would have to require. These disciples would not just be mistaken about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but they would steal the body and then perpetuate a lie having stolen it that would mean their very condemnation. What would they gain? As one writer put it, liars make very poor martyrs. This theory doesn't even deal with the fact that people besides the disciples claim to encounter the risen Christ. What do you do with James, the brother of Jesus, who encounters the risen Christ? And Saul of Tarsus that we know as Paul, who encounters the risen Christ? In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller says, This theory assumes the disciples would expect other Jews to be open to the belief an individual would be raised from the dead in the midst of history. Such a theory of the disciples stealing the body would not be possible. Keller notes that the people of this time would not have considered an individual resurrection from the dead as something to anticipate. What about number five here? The Romans moved the body. Well, this action would be actually against all Roman interests. If you read the grievous accounts from Tacitus, the Roman historian, or Pliny, the Roman governor, they are absolutely frustrated and bewildered by all of these Christians. Rome had a policy called Pax Romana that would keep the peace of Rome and squelch any particular uprisings and revolts that would undermine the rule of Rome. And proclaiming a king of the Jews and Gentiles is such a thing to squelch. If the Romans had moved the body, it would be in their best interest to produce the body as quickly as possible to destroy the Christian movement. Because a dead Messiah was a disqualified Messiah. So this theory would also undermine the testimony of the disciples. The testimony of the gospel accounts and the realities of James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul's conversions is that not only were they trying to explain an empty tomb, they claimed to have encountered the risen Jesus. The Romans moving the body strains credulity and is not a reasonable alternative at all. What about number six here? The disciples merely had hallucinations. If you studied hallucinations, they don't work this way. A whole group hallucinating the same thing together? 
No, hallucinations are something an individual may experience. A group does not have the same hallucination collectively. The Gospels do not report a single appearance and then an immediate vanishing of Jesus. He remains with them. He eats with them. He walks with them. He talks with them. He appears to them here and he appears to them there. He appears not only to his disciples, but to his family members like James's brother, as well as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, at one point, more than 500 eyewitnesses at the same time. This theory of hallucinations of a resurrected Jesus does not explain such encounters and evidence. It does not explain the origin of their belief in Jesus' bodily resurrection. For example, if you saw someone appear to you and then vanish, your conclusion probably wouldn't be that person has been bodily raised from the dead. Instead, as one writer put it, for someone in the ancient world, visions of the deceased would not lead to them concluding a raised body. It would lead to them concluding some kind of apparition or appearance of a spirit. But that is not what the disciples proclaim. They proclaim that they ate with him and they touched his hands and side. The evidence of his bodily resurrection was the news. Even perhaps against their instincts and challenging their initial doubts was the reality of an encounter with one who had been in the grave the day before. Seventh, what if the disciples didn't steal the body, but just lied? They just spread this news. They knowingly deceived others. The same problem here exists with the issue or theory about the disciples stealing the body. What would they gain from this? You have to deal with the testimony of the women, first of all. Because even if the twelve disciples are manufacturing a lie, the women on a Sunday morning are proclaiming that the tomb they've returned to is empty. The disciples would not be giving their lives for something they know is false. People might lie for all kinds of reasons. They might think, well, I'm going to be in it for the money, or I'm going to get this kind of notoriety or this kind of status, and so I'm going to mislead people. We have to think logically then, what do the disciples gain by doing this? In an earthly sense, nothing. In a worldly sense, they get ostracized and rejected. At some point, the lie would break down and you would say, all right, enough of this. Okay, well, you know, especially if they're going to usher you to a place where you're going to be beheaded, you might recant at that moment and say, all right, I was making it up all along. But it said a whole group of individuals enduring torture and martyrdom, and not just them, but other accounts as well besides the 12. All of these theories are trying to explain something. An empty tomb. People know that religious founders throughout history have died and are buried. But we divide time with B.C. and A.D. around one that the Christian gospel says has been raised from the dead and has changed everything. And no one can point to a place where his body is. Historian and skeptic Michael Grant wrote in the 1970s, the historian cannot justifiably deny the empty tomb. The question is, what's the explanation for it? Because the historical evidence and the biblical data are clear, the disciples from the beginning, in the, years and, um, in the weeks, months, and years that followed, there was a proclamation that Jesus had been risen from the dead. In, in his book, The Case for Jesus, Brant Petrie says, Notice the Jewish elders in Romans do not deny the fact of an empty tomb. They are simply trying to explain it. 
but the fact of it remains. There's no disputing the fact that the body was gone. Not only are these seven alternative theories woefully inadequate, there are some additional problems with the notion of people fabricating this whole notion of the gospel in the first century. I want to list four additional problems with a theory of fabrication of Christianity. First, the biblical record tells us the witnesses of the empty tomb are women. This point needs to land on us in a very strong way. Tim Keller is right in his book, Hope in Times of Fear, when he looks at the historical evidence, as many others have noted. He says, since women in the patriarchal culture were not even allowed to give evidence in court because they were presumed to be unreliable witnesses, he says there is no plausible reason the gospel writers would have invented an account where the women are the eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Keller says, unless... They are indeed telling you what has actually happened, and therefore, though seemingly countercultural, the eyewitness testimony of the women is reported because that is what happened. This additional problem here is a major issue. It has been noted by many Christian apologists and defenders of the faith over the years. The first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb, according to the gospel accounts, are women. And in that culture, that's an unthinkable thing if you're trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes and get them to believe something that isn't true. But it is the very kind of detail you would report if that's what actually happened. And your commitment was not to fool people, but to tell them the plain truth. Even if it were women who were the eyewitnesses, that's what you'd report. There's an additional problem here. Number two, Jewish beliefs about resurrection would have resisted a fabricated story. The resurrection hope of faithful Jews who read the Old Testament held for a general end-time resurrection of the dead. Keller is right. Jews of Jesus' day did not believe in one individual resurrection in the midst of history with evil, suffering, and death continuing on. They would not have been open to that. That's what makes Jesus' claim so staggering that I, the Son of Man, will be rejected and suffer and killed and on the third day rise again. Rising from the dead is what God would do to the righteous and the wicked on the last day. That general end-time resurrection. So if you're going to try to fabricate a story about someone in the middle of history rising bodily from the dead as an individual, that is something that Jews would not have a category open to receiving. That's not the kind of account that persuades people. Imagine if you tried to fabricate something today. In 2022, you wanted to come up with something that people would believe. Well, you would consider what's already believed widely by many, and you would consider what would be beyond the pale that would be, oh, there's no way they would buy that. And you would construct something that would be sellable, marketable, easily believable, spreadable, not as falsifiable as many other things that could be disproven. You would try to keep something as superficial and general and easily believable. It would not be easily believable to Jews in the ancient world that a man was raised bodily unto immortality from the dead in the middle of human history without the general resurrection of the dead happening. So this is a huge problem with claiming it's fabricated. It is exactly the kind of thing you would read in the gospel accounts if what they're telling you is the plain truth. A third problem with fabrication ideas is the Gentile beliefs of the day. 
Greek beliefs about the body and the spirit would resist a fabricated story. What do we need to know about the beliefs of the body and the spirit in the Greek age of uh, Jesus' uh, first century ministry? Well, Keller points out in The Reason for God, he says the universal view of the people of that time was that bodily resurrection was impossible. We're talking about in Greek ideas, not the Jewish scriptures, but among Greeks and pagans. He says in Greco-Roman thinking, the solar spirit was good. The physical material world was weak, corrupt, and defiling. So to them, the physical was always falling apart and liberation from the body is what you wanted. So in this worldview, he says resurrection was not only impossible... It was undesirable. You didn't have Gentiles thinking, oh, you know what would be great is if our bodies were raised from the dead. And then, oh, we hear about this story where that happened. Friends, the people in that world would have a skeptical mindset about the idea of someone being raised from the dead. They know the dead aren't raised. Which is what made it such incredible news when it happened. <laughs> okay, that's what Because they know that this doesn't just happen. And the Jews not having a clear category for it. And the Gentiles philosophically resisting it. It is staggering that in the ancient world, Christianity was proclaimed and believed by Jews and Gentiles. This is not the kind of story you make up. It's not the kind of story easy easy to believe if you did. It is the news proclaimed in the empire. It is the news proclaimed by people who were eyewitnesses of his majesty and risen body. The fourth additional problem with fabrication here, the announcement of bodily resurrection explodes from Jerusalem. Now, you might be able to fool a lot of people about a lot of things in certain places, but there are always certain places where it would be very difficult to convince certain people of anything. And if you're going to try to convince somewhere in the world people with this news of the risen Jesus who have no attachment to Jerusalem, some far-flung area of the Roman Empire, you might be able to convince a handful. But the idea of Jerusalem being the launching point, the historical reality of this should be staggering to us. Jerusalem is the least likely place in all the earth for this story to launch from. It would be the place of his crucifixion where the disciples would know what was true and the Romans would have known what had happened. And yet, not only was Jerusalem the place of his empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus is first proclaimed there and believed there of all places on the earth. In a book on apologetics called Why Believe?, Tawa Anderson says, Jesus of Nazareth was arrested, tried, and crucified in Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish religion and the Israelite people. Where was the Christian church born? In Jerusalem. Within months of Jesus' death, the disciples were preaching publicly, and their preaching centered on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This was the keystone proclamation from the beginning. Not some later development in history. All the evidence, both biblical and historical outside the Bible, points to the initial proclamation of disciples of this news. This apologist named Tawa Anderson also says, If the resurrection never happened, if Jesus' body was lingering in some tomb, if it had been buried in a common grave for criminals, Jerusalem is the last place the Christian church would have ever sprouted. So it is a miracle of miracles that we are proclaiming, a risen Christ and news for all the earth. The news of Christ's resurrection spread in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, within the first century. 
This is not something plausibly grounded in fabricated alternative theories. I want to talk to you about the importance of Jesus' resurrection for the biblical storyline. A few closing points here. What what about the importance of Jesus' resurrection for the biblical storyline? First of all, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth fulfills an Old Testament pattern. Jesus' ministry does not show up in a vacuum. There's a whole eon after eon and millennium after millennium of anticipation of a deliverer. You have the whole Old Testament, 39 books. 39 books with a common theme advanced progressively from Genesis forward that the seed of the woman, a deliverer, ultimately from the tribe of Judah and line of David, would come to have an everlasting reign. And in the Old Testament, there are third-day deliverances all over the place. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus' resurrection on the third day fulfilled the third-day deliverances in the Old Testament. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures, Paul says. What do these Scriptures have to say about third-day deliverances? Well, Isaac was delivered from being sacrificed on the third day in Genesis 22. Joseph released his brothers from captivity on the third day in Genesis 42. God came to Moses on Mount Sinai to encounter him on the third day in Exodus 19, we're told. Joshua readied the people to go into the promised land to begin in three days, he told them in Joshua 1.11. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights and was then delivered. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, was healed from his sickness on the third day in 2 Kings 20. Hosea tells us, after quoting, he quotes uh, the Israelites, after two days, God will revive us and on the third day, raise us up that we may live before him. In Hosea 6, verse 2, Esther successfully interceded on behalf of the Jews on the third day, we're told, in Esther 4, 16, and was welcomed in and not put to death. Over and over again, divine encounters and divine deliverances associated with third day language. Jesus' resurrection on the third day is not arbitrarily occurring in the week, but indeed fulfilling a long embedded pattern in God's own providentially guided history of the Old Testament. Second, Jesus' resurrection fulfills his own predictions. If he has said he will suffer and be killed and on the third day rise from the dead, and you only get two out of three, well, then you don't need to listen to anything else he has to say. But if this is a person who not only makes prophecies, but whose prophecies come to fulfillment and fruition as he has said, then that puts things on a different level altogether, doesn't it? Jesus' resurrection fulfills his own predictions. Knowing what the Old Testament teaches... Knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus, knowing that he himself is the Messiah to fulfill those expectations, he makes clear in his own earthly ministry what his disciples should expect. He was killed, crucified under Pontius Pilate, and on the third day he was raised from the dead. The, the third connection here about uh, the importance on the biblical storyline of the resurrection of Jesus is it establishes his permanent priesthood and kingship. We long for the one who would be the perfect intercessor and mediator, Since every priest from the Levi's tribe, Hebrews tells us, dies. The death problem persisted. Priest after priest. High priest after high priest succeeding him. The same thing with the royal tribe of Judah. We long for that 2 Samuel chapter 7 prophecy to be fulfilled. That the one from David's line would reign on the throne forever and his reign never end. But the death problem would have to be dealt with too because kings die. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean for the biblical storyline? His resurrection establishes the permanence of his kingship and priesthood. The bodily resurrection of Jesus means he is forever our king and priest, for he has conquered death. 
He has no successor. He is forever the mediator we need. And then fourthly, the bodily resurrection of Jesus foreshadows our future deliverance. See, the faithful Jews that read in the Old Testament scriptures that there was a general and future resurrection of the dead, they're right. The news of the Christian gospel is that what God had promised to do for all of his people, he has inaugurated in the first fruits of resurrection hope in Jesus. That in the middle of human history, someone has been raised from the dead unto glory and immortality and perishable has put on imperishable. And Christ is the pioneer of that way of resurrection life. We will be on his path, suffering and raised from the dead. His death and resurrection foreshadows our future deliverance. He gives hope, therefore, to us in a world of corruption and sin and death. For Christ has been raised, and 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, we shall also be raised. Think of that final verse of the the hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. We sing these words together when this song comes up, and in the fourth verse it says, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected. As we will be when he comes. Let's pray.